Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali Hosn in the show and we are recording this uh, on the second Monday of Roland Garros and uh, helping me do the honors here is uh, Steve Flink and we are lucky, you know, he visits this podcast two three times a year, something we don't take for granted. So let me welcome my guest Steve. How are you? I'm good, Saqib. It's great to be back with you again. We have, I think we got a lot to talk about here with this edition of Roland Garros. Absolutely. You know, we've been doing these daily live shows, but you know, I, you know, and those are only like for 20, 30 minutes on Twitter. That's a new function, but I wanted to still do a podcast because podcast stays captured and a lot of people can even listen to this once the tournament is over. So, let's get started. I mean, Steve, has the tournament gone to, you know, your expectations, you know? Uh, you've been you know, you've been to Roland Garros so many times. You know all these players. So, what are the first, you know, if if you were to summarize the first week in terms of surprises, uh what comes to mind first oh a mild surprise there with dominic team uh, going out in the first round to anduhar who's obviously a very fine clay court player but it was it was more evidence that team has not found himself yet this year and he's not the same guy we've been watching the last 3 years and the woes that he had on the way to roland garros uh, it really it just extended right into the tournament and he let that match get away from two sets up that was kind of a sad sight i thought i felt badly for him and then i guess conversely the biggest surprise to me on a positive note is medvedev who had, did nothing but talk along the way to roland garros about how he really didn't understand clay and how he didn't re- understand how to make his game work on the clay and he sounded completely confounded by the surface and by what it was going to take for him to succeed on the surface so i i think uh th- 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 that's what i think of so far with the men with the women you know obviously we we had the osaka episode that surprised everybody but leaving that aside because it's been so uh talked about and and exhausted in so many areas of the media uh i i was not surprised by serena i was surprised by all the talk surrounding Serena in the sense that to me her real possibilities will always be Wimbledon in the Open and the Australian those three the, the two hard courts the one grass court event I don't see her winning Roland Garros again and I think she did well enough to reach the round of 16 uh but I was surprised that the talk was sort of picking up a, as if you know, people talking about her draw opening up I never thought there was a good draw for Serena in Roland Garros and I don't mean that as a knock on her I just mean there's more there's a much wider cast of players that can beat her on on the clay than can do so uh anywhere else so those are kind of my initial thoughts overview of the tournament uh you know we've got we've got the big uh, big guys have moved into the quarters and and obviously with Rafa heading trying for title number 14 and Djokovic looking for major number 19 and I mean that they 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 they're, they're in the last eight as we expected and and we've got uh, a very intriguing quarterfinal about to take place tomorrow between Medvedev and and Tsitsipas which we can talk about later so those Absolutely. are my that's my overview of the tournament as it stands now sure so we'll get to those big matchups you know in a bit uh, but uh, you know you mentioned dominic team and again i've talked to a lot of people and you know the reason how i also approach these podcasts is uh when i get variety of guests you know like yourself and i had andre gomez you know sometimes it's i i think it's value added for me and for the listener if i ask the same question to different people because you know it's an opinion making exercise so dominic team again uh you know we all were not surprised what how it played out because you know he's saying he was fine he was just outplayed it was not a mental issue but you know we all know that to an austrian magazine uh he kind of admitted that you know he had a lull 
emotional burnout or whatever you know you want to call it after us open and then and add the pandemic and bubble situations he kind of you know lost some of the edge and you know it happened in, in a very competitive you know this international traveling week in week out you know very competitive tennis environment this happens so you know again with you i have to bring in some history i told i asked gomez about the macindro sabbatical which was a lot longer than team 7 8 weeks but did you see any comparison because you know in this kind of sport where you your colleagues are also your rivals you practice with them all the time so you think players saw okay this guy is admitting to kind of having you know the edge off this is my chance and gomez interestingly compared this to villander's mini sabbatical after he had a dominant 88 so you know way in with your perspective you know, does it even merit a comparison first of all and what do you I, think yeah sorry sakib yeah i suppose it does that's interesting i mean i respect what gomez has to say i always have he's a good guy and smart great, great player won this tournament i i look at it they, they were all very different i i certainly hope that it will not lead to this uh, lead him down the same path as mats because mats was never the same player after 88 Uh, he really he had been so incredibly consistent from 82 through 88 from the time he won that first french all the way to the winning three majors in 88 and i i never thought we would see him decline as as he did and he just was he never had the same drive the same hunger i i do believe in team's case he will reestablish himself and it maybe it was a mistake in some senses to kind of let your your the tennis community know how much you've been struggling you know privately with your you know your inner self and and the meaning of life and you know all these big issues that have been swirling around his mind but i i think he's he's a very tough fellow uh, who who will recover his winning ways i just think it's going to take a little time and it, it it may not even happen necessarily the rest of this year i'd be surprised if he did it in time to defend the us open for instance but i do believe by next year you know the old dominic team will be back among us uh, and and that will be definitely good for the sport because you know this was supposedly his time to challenge you know rafael nadal at roland garros and novak djokovic as well uh, you know challenge these two guys you know who have been at the top of the sport for so long but it looks like we have uh, the mouth watering prospect of stefano tsitsipas and daniel medvedev you know trying to raise their hands and you know the way the draw played out you know one of the, these two and sasha zverev and there's davidovich fokina one of these four will be in the final so they all will be, will be worthy in their way but uh, you know what you have seen so far and the little insight you know we all have on medvedev how this was his like grasses for cow moments for clay and now here we are you know like we are talking about he lives in uh sissipas's head you know like with the matchup and andrew burton who's a colleague of our compared the uh, early days of Tsitsipas Medvedev to Nalbandian and Federer how Nalbandian pretty much you know had a mental edge over Roger Federer and then Federer figured him out so break that match match up for us what do you look for it you know who's your favorite going into it even though Tsitsipas is a much better accomplished player in clay but does head to head mean so much that we can throw out Tsitsipas's you know clay court credentials in this match tomorrow No, I don't think we can, but I think it definitely plays a role. It's going to be important for Tsitsipas to start well in that match. You know, he lost him in straight in the Australian semis and after beating Rafa in the quarters and it's a strange thing. I think I I I know a lot of people think it's the matchup. I'm not convinced it's the matchup. I'm not convinced that Tsitsipas doesn't have the game to play on pretty equal terms with Medvedev. And you would think 
in his mind, he would welcome, even though he's lost his only previous match on clay against Medvedev, that was a few years ago. I just think right now, given what he's done on the path to Roland Garros, that Tsitsipas should be feeling good about himself and his chances. But on the other hand, neither he nor most of the rest of us really expected Medvedev to charge into the quarters as, as confidently as he has. So that's what makes it so intriguing. You're right. He's been in his head. No doubt about that. But I, I think that, that, that Tsitsipas and his father and his camp must look at this as a major opportunity to change the course of this rivalry right then and there tomorrow in the quarterfinals at Roland Garros. That's how he's got to look at it that way. Forget the 6-1 edge from Medvedev and say, okay, this is brand new. And I'm the guy that's been playing great on clay all spring long. I'm the guy that won a couple of clay court tournaments, including my first Masters 1000. I nearly beat Djokovic. I nearly beat Nadal. I was on the edge of doing that. I couldn't be playing much better on the clay than I am right now. And I'll meet the challenge. That's how he's got to look at it. In Medvedev's case, he's got to be saying to himself, look, I've pretty much owned this guy. I, I, I never expected to play th- this well here, except that once I arrived in Paris, I, my mindset changed. So I'm just going to keep it going. I'm going to keep doing what I have been doing and play the way I have against Stefanos in the past. And I know that he's a little uptight about playing me. So I think that's what makes it very intriguing. I believe it has the elements of a, of a five set match. If, if they both play the way they have been, I could see this could be their, their best match yet in the series. Yeah, I think that's pretty mouthwatering. You know? and, I, and I'm kind of also leaning towards what you said, but I have friends, you know, who also know the game well. And when we discuss it, they believe the head to head has a way. And do you feel, do you, I mean, do you want to cite any examples? Like when, uh, this kind of head-to-head crossed over surfaces. We know, like, you know, uh, Federer and Albanian is there. Federer Hewitt is there. Even Rafa Federer started off like this. Federer, it took him a while to get a win. I think until it was 2006 Wimbledon final. He didn't, he was, what, one and six against Nadal. So yeah. you think, uh, again, going with, you want to, you know, maybe share some other, you know, rivalry from the day. Like, if, I know there's a famous line with Gerolaitis and was it Borg? If you want to throw some anecdotes there. When, yeah, uh, Funny part of that is that you, most people say what you did. They believe it was Borg. It was actually Gary Lydis and Connors and the Masters in New York. And and uh, what had happened was that Gary Lydis had won the very first time they'd ever played. He, his first match ever against Jimmy back in 72, also in New York, but in a much smaller tournament. This was at the Masters where he finally ends the the losing streak. And that's when he said nobody beats what, and they asked him, you know, what, what, yeah. what, how did you finally do it, Vitas? And he said, well, nobody beats Vitas Gariolaitis 17 times in a row. And, the, and, and it's one of the biggest roars of laughter I've ever heard in a, in a press conference. And probably only Vitas could have brought it about that way. It's hard to, it, this one is still a little bit young, uh, yeah. Saqib, to, for us to jump to too many conclusions. Similar age bracket, you know, they've made similar rises. They're two of the guys that have been expected to make the breakthrough along with Dominic team to, get on the board and start winning majors. And Tsitsipas has been so, you know, a, a year-end champ. They've both done it at the year-end championships and they've, you know, they've won 1,000s. They've been closing in on it. Medvedev has his two slam finals and Stefanos has a bunch of semifinals. So their records, I think, are similar. And then uh, as I, I'm just not convinced. I want to see three or four more matches play out over this year. And if for some reason Tsitsipas <laughs> was beaten every time starting tomorrow, then I then I would worry about it from his standpoint about it being a matchup problem. But I, I still believe that with some adjustments 
he he can do it against Medvedev. He's beaten all of the other top players. I mean, he, he his game uh, uh, at his best has has shown up quite well against everybody. So I think that, as I say, I think it's a big opportunity. But I believe that given the history that that first set of the best of five set quarter they're going to play at Roland Garros is going to be even more important for Sitsipas than it is for Medvedev. Yeah, it'll be more like holding serve because Medvedev has, you know, taken care of him so many times besides that one loss in an indoor arena where Sitsipas got his only win. So you're right. I mean, this one, you know, it's, it's too early to, to kind of bracket also, it. But again, Sitsipas... Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Just a quick point because you brought that up about Federer. It's fascinating a couple of times. It's true that he turned things around against Nelbandi and he th- turned things around against Hewitt. Did that against a lot of players. Not, but in that case, I think that was Roger just elevating his game and soaring past ev- everyone else uh, so that it, he knew it was a matter of time before he'd beat all those guys if, if he peaked, which he did. Nadal was a special problem. But I mean, all those other guys that had sort of g- gained some kind of a cycle logical edge on him and beating him in the early years they knew they were in trouble once he started beating them so I think that's it. the Federer case is is unusual but this one here I, I think both players know that tomorrow's a it's an important very important match for both of them because they're gonna they're gonna feel like if they win that match they might play Zarev in the semis they've got a great opportunity to be in the final of the French Open and take their chances against Rafa or Novak so it, it has really important implications for both Sure. So as we look forward, I mean, the quarterfinals will be played soon, maybe in the next couple of days. Uh, where does Sasha Zverev fit in this? For me, he was, he is, and he was a better clay court player than Daniel Medvedev. Daniel Medvedev has already been, you know, like just seen along with Dominic Team as a, you know, front line of challenges to, you know, to the to the Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, you know, the trifecta. Uh, so where does Sasha Zverev rank in the pecking order in this draw and overall compared to Daniel Medvedev and uh, Stefano Tsitsipas? According not, to you. not far behind, really not far behind, because I think that of the three, I would even take his first serve. Medvedev has, has a very, very good first serve. I would still say of the three that the best first serve in the trio belongs to Zarev. I would also say that his two-hander, uh, it's the best backhand of the three in my view, although Sitsipas has a great one-hander. And I would say, you know, it, it, there's some similarities between him and Medvedev in the sense that they, they both can go through some pretty big mood swings in, over the course of a season, believing themselves and then going into despair and then trying to get it back. But he's always been, you know, he's won Masters 1000s on clay. He did it again this season. He's always loved the clay almost as much as any surface. And so uh, I, I don't think we, we should undersell him. He's got a real opportunity here to reach the final if he plays his best. The quarterfinal, certainly he's a, a clear favorite to win that. And then I would give him a decent chance against either Sitsipas or Medvedev. I know they won't look at it that way. But I think that he, uh, you know, he after a slow start and going down two sets to love in his first round match, he's really picked up, starting to play his best tennis, destroyed Nishikori to reach the quarters. And uh, he now is, is sort of growing into becoming a big occasion player himself. And he, has those really painful memories of the U.S. Open last year when he led two sets to love over team, was crushing him, and then led him back in the match and eventually even served for the match himself in the fifth set before losing in a fifth set tiebreak. It was an absolutely uh, jarring, uh, just the most painful loss of his career, I'm sure, but he knows he was that close to winning a major. And now yeah. here he is closing in on the potential to at least 
get to the final. I, I, I find him the most intriguing guy on that side because the, whoever wins Sitsipas Medvedev is going to have to get back up and play a great match potentially against Zarev. Yeah, I think I, I agree. And I, I've been calling like Sitsipas Zarev could be, you know, one of the best matches or maybe the match of the tournament, of course. On the other side, you know, we're talking about two legends. So, uh, you know, this will be a lofty comparison if, you know, if Nadal and Djokovic even bring their B games against each other. And, you know, that, that can make up for some fireworks. So, but, uh, but Sakib, let me just ask you quickly, don't you think that also, I agree with that totally. That would be, again, another mouth-watering contest if, it, if we got Sitsipas and Zarev. But I would feel in a, similarly about Medvedev Zarev. Uh, that would be a fascinating one, too. Right now, you know, both of them playing for a place in the final. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with either one of those matchups. Yeah, I think you, you can't go wrong because even Steve Wiseman was asking Jim Courier and Andy Roddick, I think the week of Rome, out of the, these three, who has the most uh, upside? I thought it's Tsitsipas. Courier said Tsitsipas, but then Roddick said it's Zverev because Zverev can win on all four surfaces. And he said Tsitsipas hasn't done anything of note on grass. He's only made the round of 16 once. That was three years ago when he lost to Isner. So yeah, like you said, still first few pages of the book for all three. Very exciting what how they can play out their you know their own three three way rivalry. Um, the sport is better off, I think. You know, in terms of the depth. You know, yes, of what these guys. Yeah, just a quick interjection on that, because I have a great respect for Andy Roddick and his opinions. But I would say that it won't be long before Tsitsipas is making his mark on the grass. Yes, he hasn't found the formula yet. But when you look at his game, his transition game, his ability to attack, to get in comfortably, to volley well, it's the first serve. He he can play very first-rate attacking tennis. And and therefore, yeah, think, there's no reason to sorry. me that he shouldn't, that he shouldn't become a great grass court player. Plus that it's not as hard yeah. to make the transition now because the surfaces are more similar than they used to be. No, it is. And, and, I, and I'm with you, but I think Mert keeps me honest and I would just share because, you know, he's such a good friend of yours too. He says the only thing that's going to be a slight, you know, uh, not a block, but I think Sitsipas has to uh, get his uh, backhand return of serve better on grass because in clay, he can, you know, get away with it on grass. I think he needs to develop the block return, you know, which Federer has used as a one-hander. And I think that that'll be the next step. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm with I, you, I think. Yeah, Mert's, Mert's right on target with that. I don't disagree with that at all. But I think it's something he will, that he's aware of and that he will uh, attend to. And once he does, uh, he's going to have some great Wimbledons. I don't, I don't have any doubt about it. I, I like his ability on all surfaces. But it's interesting, you know, no doubt that up until this point, Zarev has been the most versatile all-surface player of that, of that contingent. And it is hard to believe because, you know, like uh, you, his game is not as flashy as Tsitsipas and he didn't have the run like Medvedev. But yeah, if you look at his numbers, his numbers don't lie. No, they don't. They don't. So let's look at the big two now, you know, the big two that remain and everybody, you know, talks about the potential semifinal, which is one win each way now for both men. Uh, for me, again, I'll, I'll give you the floor after this. Again, Rafa was my pre-tournament pick to win this thing, but I'll admit Djokovic to me, looked like the best in the first week. He looked extremely sharp, and his match against Cuevas was just a thing of beauty because Cuevas is probably one of the toughest clay quarters around, and he showed up that day against Djokovic. And they played a very high-quality three-set match. So what have you seen of Djokovic and Nadal? And, uh, you know, of course, 
with Nadal, we know like, you know, he's won this tournament so many times, every possible combination of form, playing okay, playing great, playing not so great in the first week. But uh, if that match is still a one uh, win away for both men, how do you access their path so far? And what do you think, uh, you know, what do you think can be happening when they play on Wednesday? Well, I, I agree with what you oh, said. Sorry. Yeah, Djokovic's first three rounds were very impressive. For some reason, he got very apprehensive when he came out to play Musetti, which baffled me. I mean, I, I understand his respect for Musetti. Musetti is a, is a great prospect, 19-year-old Italian, a great shot maker and moves well. And, and uh, he, he's, he's a difficult guy to exploit in a lot of ways. Uh, and I understand why it maybe took Djokovic a little time. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't think that was a great performance from him. I thought he did very well to come back and turn it around and sweep through those last three sets. And then Musetti uh, uh, quit, of course, at four love down in the fifth. But I, 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 I don't think it's going to hurt his confidence, but I think he could use a more solid performance, try to take care of Berrettini in three or at most four sets, but try to get through that match a little more confidently. And he admitted that he was nervous in, in those first two sets against the Italian. And I, I didn't quite understand why with all of his experience and as well as he played coming into that round of 16. Rafa, I think, has looked very solid throughout. He should have lost that first set, to, the third set of the first round match against Poprin, and he saved a couple of set points. And, you know, one tough set with Gasquet. And, you know, he, he's, he's, been, he's looked good in every round, I thought. And then fort- a bit fortunate to come out of the first set, of course, in his round of 16 clash against Sinner who let the same thing happen last year, serving for the first set. And that's a situation which you've got to exploit against Nadal to get him down a set if you have that kind of an opening. And Sinner played a terrible game at 5-4 on his serve and uh, got broken at love and lost 16 of the last 18 points to drop that first set. So I thought Rafa played very well thereafter. I feel like Rafa's kind of stepped up with each round and shown us that he's building for the latter rounds. We'll see how he looks against Schwartzman. But I would still say, listen, Last year, Saqib, I really thought Djokovic was going to win the tournament over Nadal. Me too. It was in the fall. Rafa only had one tournament preparation, loses to Schwartzman in Rome, was complaining, not complaining, but was concerned about the conditions in Paris in the fall, cooler weather, not his kind of conditions. And yet he swept through the tournament, didn't lose a set, and crushed Novak in the final. Now, obviously, they, they met again a few weeks ago in Rome, and it was a first-class three-set match won by Nadal, where I think Djokovic gained some clay court confidence in the process by pushing Rafa hard. It's a match Novak actually could have won if he'd gotten an early break in the third. He was right in there with Rafa. But I still believe that on best of five on clay, I still have to favor Rafa right now. I think, that again, that first set would be very important for Djokovic to start strong if we get that matchup to get off to a good start and try to get Rafa down a set and, and start swinging more freely. Uh, he, he's definitely the guy with the best chance of anybody in the draw to beat Rafa. Uh, but right now I would pick Rafa right now, not, not with, not by a wide margin, hard fought match, four or five sets. But I just uh, believe, uh, you know, that he's in good enough form to do that. And yet again, if Novak can, if Novak can play a, a really good quarterfinal against Berrettini, uh, that, that will help him coming in in terms of his confidence and how he feels he's playing because he certainly turned it around today. The Italian, something happened to him with he's talking about cramping and a little lower back problems, but Novak played really well those last three sets. 
But the question to me was, why was he down two sets? I don't think he should have been. Yeah, I think a lot of people are saying, I missed the second set. But yeah, I mean, uh, what I've seen, you know, Djokovic was way below, I think, in, in the tie breaks. You know, usually we've got so accustomed to him being so clutch. So, you know, and he also, I think, left a ball, uh, I think, in the second set tie break, right? Yeah. That he thought yeah. was going to go out. Yeah. Yeah, he did. But yeah, absolutely. Those were two shaky tie breaks. The first one, he had 4 1. And he hit an angle return cross court that probably would have won the point against anybody. And the guy and the Italian made an amazing backhand down the line winner, curled that shot into the corner for a winner. And that turned it around. And eventually Novak lost that breaker at 9 7. But uh, second set tiebreaker was just a disaster for him. Error after error. And he let that one ball go that, go that you alluded to. And uh, it wasn't even close. So, I mean, that, that was surprising, you know, that he, that he couldn't lift himself in the breakers when you thought that might be when he would separate himself from this guy. On the other hand, he was very poised that those last three sets and he really imposed himself. And overall, I do think he's playing very well. The question is, in, in his mind, does he, does he really believe deep down that he can beat Nadal on that court? Yes, he's done it once in 15, but that rapper was not, the same Rafa we've seen most of the years, and it was a vintage Novak was one of his best years. So we have to factor that in, that, that the timing was ideal for Djokovic and bad for Nadal, who was struggling in the in 15 and 16 significantly. And 16, of course, is when he had to pull out in the third round with an injury. But he, those years were tough years for Rafa. He wasn't the same player. And Novak was was pretty much at his peak. So I definitely weigh that in. And otherwise, Novak had the great chance in 13 in the semis and wasn't able to do it from a breakup in the fifth. And uh, last year, of course, was just, I thought, one of his worst performances and one of Nadal's best. But I do believe we're going to get a great, great match one way or another. And I would be really impressed if Djokovic found a way to win. But my, my hunch tells me Nadal wins it in four or five sets. Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, we all think that match is most likely going to happen. But just to give respect to the two opponents, the stand in the way, Diego Schwartzman and Matteo Berrettini, uh, which man can pose a greater challenge uh, from any chance of preventing from, you know, Djokovic Nadal taking place on Friday? Well, I mean, they both present different challenges. Schwartzman, because he does have the one win in Rome last year that we, we alluded to. And, and, and he's such a good, scrappy, great clay court player. And he's been in good form the whole tournament. And, you know, he's played Rafa tough at Roland Garros before. Not, not so great last year. Uh, and he didn't play a great semi against him, but, uh, but he's done it in the past. And I feel like, you know, he goes in with a good attitude. And Nadal's not entirely comfortable against him, but he's confident enough. So I still believe it would be in a, a really huge, and I don't want to say monumental, but a, a very significant upset if it happened. I can't see Diego maybe gets a set. I'd be really surprised if he, if he pushed him to five. I think more likely Nadal in four, possibly three. And then with Berrettini, it all comes down to the serve and the forehand, as it usually does with him. And can I, on, this, on these clay courts, can, does, can he really do it? Can, he be, uh, can his power game, the big serve and, and that forehand that he relies on so much, be enough to take him past Djokovic on clay courts. I, I don't see that. Once again, I see the potential for a set from Berrettini, but I think Djokovic is going to be, you know, too sound from the backcourt and he's going to pepper away on the Italian's backhand and uh, his returns, you know, sooner or later, he's going to get those breaks as great as Berrettini can serve. Novak is going to get on, especially to that second serve. And 
and find his openings to break. So yes, I mean, I, I don't rule out a, a win for either one of them, but I find it highly unlikely that either Berrettini or Schwartzman can pull off the upset. Yeah, same here. So uh, talking about Matteo Berrettini, you think, uh, is he going to be disadvantaged? Because a lot of time people say, you know, because he got deprived of the Federer match. So you think disadvantage in terms of, does it break his rhythm or does it make him more rested to take on the big challenge of playing Djokovic? It's interesting because Djokovic went through this himself. Uh, yeah, like in 2011. In 2011, and, you know, he had all those days off, but five days off, I think, before playing Federer in the semis. And I don't think it helped him at all. You know, I think he was really trying to find his range for a couple of sets. He eventually lost it in four sets, but I felt like that that much time off proved to be a handicap. Will that be the case for Berrettini? We don't know, but I, he certainly would have been better off playing and beating Roger Federer and having that as a driving force for this next one with Djokovic. But I, it's more time off than you want in the middle of a major. So that uh, doesn't mean he can't suddenly settle down early and, and be inspired and play a great match. But I think he would have been far better off playing Roger Federer and obviously coming up with a victory. Sure. All right. So since you said last word, Roger Federer, let's bring him in the conversation. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? And again, a lot has been said. It's almost 24 hours since his announcement came. He kind of teed it up after his win over Kepfer that, you know, there's a good chance that, you know, he will consult his team. And, you know, here we are. So what are your thoughts on how this all this unfolded? I watched the interview that night. And I, and I thought, wow, I was surprised how direct he was, that he was talking so seriously about the potential for not playing that match against Berrettini and how he was going to have to talk to the team. And then even when the reporters followed up and wanted him to just give a sort of a, uh, you know, a general analysis of what it would be like to play Berrettini and what it would, you know, what it would come down to, he didn't want to address that. He said, no, I, as I told you, I'm not even sure I'm going to play Berrettini. So, uh I don't I, I think it's an understandable decision, given that he's played so little and he'd only had a couple of tournaments and one on clay and only one match on clay. And so he's still trying to get used to the regularity of match play again. And he, obviously Wimbledon is the one that he thinks he has the best chance to win as well. He should feel that way. But I think what was unfortunate was he kept saying all along, Sakib, all along before the tournament, during the tournament, there was no way he could win it. You know, coming in, he said that. Then, then after the second round, I believe he was saying uh, he won't. Uh, he he's, he wasn't going to get out of the Djokovic quarter. Well, that sounds like somebody who's sort of just using the tournament. It, it came off, and I think unfairly to him in a way because I don't think he meant it that way. But it came off almost like he was just using this as a sort of a training ground for going out onto the grass in Halley and then Wimbledon. Like it didn't matter that much. And I, I, I think it did matter that much. I th- and in fairness to him, I think he has great reverence for the French Open and everything it represents. But that didn't come across by, I, I wish he would have just been saying all along, I'm here to do the best I can. I'm taking it match by match. But I don't show up at any tournament without believing that I can win it. So that's how I have to approach this. Even with all the time away, I still have to approach it that way. I'm not getting carried away with my chances, but I'm going to take it match by match. And I'm going to give myself every chance to, try to win this tournament. If he had talked that way, maybe there wouldn't have been as much fuss after he pulled out. But then there were people that were criticizing him for pulling out because, you know, for various reasons, as you, as you alluded to. So we had a Twitter live show yesterday and I asked, you know, my colleague, Matt Zemek, the same thing. Again, I think uh, if you're a Federer fan, this is more worrisome if you think, you know, because I don't think there's enough time between now and Wimbledon. 
if his knee and his body is like kind of in where he's being very cautious. Of course, Wimbledon is a big goal. Imagine him playing a match against Anderson in the third down and going like close to three and a half, four hours. He still has to play a match, you know, next day. So let's see how his body reacts there. Uh, not saying he's going to withdraw there, but I think it looks like his body is just not ready, you know, to go the distance. Maybe it's long-term planning. Uh, and another thing that came in our conversation, Matt, you know, who's again, very articulate in his thoughts, uh, part of tennis with an accent. He said, you know, like he, did, he kind of said, okay, Federer's done enough for tennis. He gave his like full, you know, balancing piece, you know, why some people can think it's unfair and Federer can take something on the chin and some, some of these things are unfair that people are saying, you know, he had two surgeries and, you know, whatnot. But Federer's also known for his old school Aussie toughness. So you think he lost like that coin toss there because, you know, that was always associated with him. Or you think that's too late in the career to take away, you know, all the grit or all the discipline he may have showed in the past? No, probably more the latter. I just think it was something that, you know, I, I don't think he should be condemned in any way. And he did have to do what made sense for him and not risk going out against Berrettini and perhaps really hurting the knee badly and finding himself unable to play Wimbledon. But it was more in the remarks that he made. I also think he maybe perhaps he could have come in and done a, a follow up press conference instead of doing a statement and made it clear that he was he had done the best he could and that he, he really had to weigh it. And in no way was he trying to demean the French Open or act as if the French Open was not an, an enormously important event to him and to the public. So I, I, I would just offer that mild criticism, but I, I definitely understand why he did it. And he, he made it clear from the time he, he was approaching the tournament that he didn't expect to be in it too long. He also could never have anticipated a three and a half hour match like the Kepfer one. N- no way. So, I mean, as you know, usually he can get in some four or five set matches, but it tends to be that they move more quickly and there's a few sets that aren't tiebreakers or seven, five sets. But this one was really exhausting physically and watching it. I was amazed how many, how much, how hard Kepfer made him work. So I could see why, how, why that took so much out of him. And it, frankly, I think it was a wise decision to to pull out. Yeah, we don't know if he's going to play you know, another French Open. Let's see how the future pans out. Uh, so before we do a switch to the women's side of the draw, uh, what are your thoughts on the rude Fokina match? Everybody's been talking about that match. That was like one of the best matches we've seen. It's two rounds ago. Uh, any potential, you know, uh, tips for both these guys? Like if there's a fan of Casper Ruud listening here, uh, were you impressed? You know, what's a, what's a big picture takeaway for you, for Casper Ruud and ADF? That's uh, Davidovich Fokina. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a terrific match. I was a little surprised given Rude, the fact that Rude would, he was winning his sets so quickly and easily and then losing the tight ones and the tiebreakers and finally the fifth set got away. I was a bit surprised that he didn't take more advantage of all the confidence he built up along the way on clay. On the other hand, the other guy really, really played, you know, that's tennis. You, you don't have to win every set six love or six two, you know, he just win it, what, do whatever it takes to win it. And he competed well and he deserved the victory. So uh, I felt badly for Rude though, because I thought he had the potential to go, go deeper. And in a sense, he wasted it, but he was beaten fair and square. Yep. So let's talk about Serena Williams. You know, we'd have a Casper Rude transition there from Roger Federer, but Serena Williams, you said, you did mention, you know, like the best chances still lie elsewhere. Uh, but do you think, uh, just like Federer, you know, she got enough sets here to get some rhythm going into 
the Grasscourt uh, tournament, uh, Grasscourt season, even though she didn't say exactly, and she finished her match. So that's where the comparisons end. But uh, uh, how how well she is, you know, hitting the ball and, you know, how will these four rounds serve her for the grass swing? I mean, I thought she looked vulnerable in every round. In the first round match, she had to save a couple of set points in the tie break to, to win that before winning in straight. And then she lost a set in the second round. And then Collins, uh, Danielle Collins, had her down 4-1 in the, in the second set and probably should have taken that to three. So I wasn't convinced by Serena all the way up to the, the straight set loss that she suffered. Uh, yet there's a lot to be gained because, I, I mean, in her case, she had her leg taped. There, there may have been sort of a minor injury she was nursing or that was just precautionary to have the heavy tape. But I do think she it's different from Federer because his is, you know, coming off those knee surgeries, it's a different kind of problem. Her case, I think those matches were valuable because she hadn't gotten it pre-French Open. She had not played well on the clay, and she knew it. And so I think that can can be helpful to her for Wimbledon. I definitely believe it can be helpful. And I think she'd be wise to try to play a grass court tournament. But even if she doesn't, having gotten four, you know, four matches in, in Roland Garros is going to do her no harm. Okay. Yeah, uh, that, that's how, again, I see the big picture. And, you know, Wimbledon, again, will present her. Uh, I think the best chance to do well. But again, like you said, you know, no matter, even if she didn't look good, I still think, you know, sets played equals to, you know, more mileage as, you know, and you need to be matched up when you're going into a major like Wimbledon. Uh, There are going to be players like uh, Rabakana who beat her. I mean, there are players like that who, they're going to be lurk. they're going to be, uh, you know, Gonna, there's going to be plenty of them even at Wimbledon in the open, too. I say there's a wider net, a wider cast in Paris, but she's still going to have the, there's going to be some danger spots e- even in the early rounds of Wimbledon. But I think she's striking the ball well. I don't think she's serving at her absolute best, but I suspect that she'll, that the serve was sort of, I, I suspect she'll be serving a lot better by the time we get to Wimbledon. And obviously the surface is going to give her, a, a, there's going to be a lot more gain from the surface a lot more advantage from playing on the grass but Serena I I mean I I think I do expect I will say this I do expect to see her in the quarters or semis of Wimbledon whether she can make the final I don't know no the serve point is really interesting if she's striking the ball well and you know like she's getting some rhythm back and confidence back serve has been her one of you know biggest strengths and if that falls in place that makes her an absolute you know one of the absolute favorites a short list of favorites so you're right uh Serve so if does come back in time, you know, it'll be interesting where she lands in the draw and how she navigates through the first week. Uh, so let me talk about the defending champion here, Iga Schwantek. You know, is this her tournament to lose from the get-go? And how do you see with what remains of uh, the draw now? You know, it's it's funny how you pose that question, Saki, because that's the way I've, I've tended to look at it that way. Yes, I agreed with the people that said at the outset that there were, you know, there potentially were 10 players that could win this tournament. But I... I Felt like Sriantek was peaking, you know, and, you know, and beat Pliskova love and love in that final. And I thought she was really starting to find it at just the right time and that she's got the right temperament and right disposition to come back here and not feel too much pressure about defending a major title. I think she believes that she's the best clay court player in the world. And, you know, now she's right there in the quarterfinals and uh, she's been playing well the whole tournament. And I, I think that could be a very tough match with Sakari in, in the quarters, but I still like her chances on the clay against anybody. 
So yes, to get to get to your to the heart of your question, yes, I do believe she's the one to beat, and I do believe that at her best, she beats anyone else on clay. And what do you make of uh, Coco Goff's run so far? She definitely can move on the surface, can play well. I mean, uh, uh, is she ahead of schedule? I mean, you know, she's so talented, but you know, uh, what what is your early impressions? You know, for this Roland Garros and what Coco has done. Well, I, I think she's been very impressive and she won the tournament coming in here. That gave her a boost. Uh, I feel like she's been making steady progress really throughout the spring. Uh, and I, I, I see her improving almost tournament by tournament. And I feel like that the, 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 those rashes of double faults that she could serve are, we're seeing that d- decreased. I, I see her getting more confidence in her second serve and, and also shoring up the forehand side, which was also tended to be a slight vulnerability at times. These weaknesses are are have are are not what they once were. So I think that that's a frightening prospect for a lot of her rivals. But that's why she's in the quarters. And you know, I'm hoping we get to see her play the defending champion in the semis. I think that would be a magnificent match. And uh, I, I'd still give the edge to the Polish player, but I, I I'd like to see Coco challenge her. Sure, uh, we'll definitely see you know how that plays out with Coco and you know Sakre and Shuantek. You know all. Uh, possible semi-finalists there. Uh, and let's uh, look at the bottom half where the experience uh, Pavlichenkova is having, you know, a late resurgence. Again, you know, how sport has gotten older. She's still nowhere old, but she's still a veteran, you know. There's a balancing act there. So did you see this run coming? Uh, because, you know, she made a deep run in Madrid, scheduling, you know, kind of, uh, you know, messed her chances there because she played a late, late night match and then had to, you know, play again. Uh, that happens in one-week tournaments. But uh, how surprised are you uh, for her taking advantage of that draw? Mildly, mildly. I mean, I think that, you know, the gap is just not that great between, you know, a, a player ranked 15 or somebody, in her case, at number 31 seed. So, I, I, but I thought she was very impressive in coming back against Azarenka to win that in three sets. And now, who knows? I mean, you know, with the... Anybody on that half could come through to the final. It's it's totally wide open, but I think her chances are as good as anyone's on on her half of the draw. So yeah, mild surprise, but I'm not shocked. Sure. Before we wrap this up, Paula Bedosa, right? Uh, even when Naomi Osaka was in the draw in the first round, a lot of folks believe that Bedosa has been playing good clay court tennis, and you know this could be her section to lose. And looks like she's backing that kind of faith showed by you know a lot of tennis fans. Uh, what are your thoughts on her run and how how deep can she go? I mean, could she could she be could she could she win it all? I mean, let let's see even get tempted to ask that. Well, again, she's in the same range there. She's seated thirty three. Uh, yeah, I I I I don't see her winning that final, but I see her with a great chance to get to that final. Maybe I'm selling her short, but I again, anybody on her half can any of the four could get through to the final. I still would like the the defending champion if she's there in the title round contest, but uh, I think she's a, she's a really she's had a very impressive run, and it's no accident. And I I, I can't wait to see her play that quarterfinal. I mean, it's it's been a, a great tournament for her. This is a chance to really sort of redefine herself uh, by getting, say, at least to the final of Roland Garros. Sure. And a generic question at the end, uh, you know, a lot of folks believe WTA has depth, but the depth is kind of chaotic because you don't know who's going to come out. And that's how the ATP used to be long, long time ago, you know, during uh, uh, during the Sampras and Federer years, you know, like 
you know, there was a lot of talent, but there was no, no one dominant player, even though Hewitt was number one. Uh, so w- what, what would serve the WTA best? Do you think rivalries is what they need, or you think uh, they need a dominant player to, you know, just start winning few, like a Halep or a Schwantek, start taking uh, control of a territory like Clay, and then uh, Osaka already has the hard courts covered. Uh, what do you think will be more fascinating with the evolution of the WTA in the next four or five years with all the well, candidates they have? Yeah, you touched on it. Rivalries would be very important because there's a need for some more continuity. Uh, you, you, you do want to see more repeat winners. And, you know, obviously Simona got on the board and then got a second. And Naomi won her first back in the at the U.S. Open in 18. And now look at her. She's got four. And I think there'll be a lot more for her, especially when she when she learns to play the, the tennis she's capable of playing on clay and grass courts to add that to her, her uh, hard court uh, heroics, you might say. But I think that's, yeah, we could use some rivalries and some repeat winners. I, I don't want to, I'd rather see a year. I think the best thing is to have years where you get, you might have two to three different Grand Slam champions. But then um, um, uh, in that group, you see, some repeat meetings at majors and, and and great rivalries that the public can enjoy seeing. And, you know, we've had that in the past and obviously a, a showcase in the Everett Navratilova years and also with Steffi Graf and Monica Sellis and the Williams sisters, but not so much since. And I think that's the one missing piece in the women's game right now. And I hope that over the coming year, we're going to, we will see some developing rivalries at the top. It would, it would be a, it would be terrific, like with, with the likes of Ash Barty, uh, Naomi Osaka, uh, you know, these players. At the top. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And get them playing each other on a more regular basis and going back and forth. And and there, there'd be more, more intrigue among the public looking forward to because that's, of course, what the big three have just carried that for so long in the men's game and made people salivate over the prospects of, of seeing them play again and again in the latter stages of majors. And we, we could use that in the women's game. And then they, they would really, it'd be a major boost to the popularity of women's tennis in my view. Yeah, absolutely. The potential uh, again is quite uh, unlimited. If you look at the names that you took and th- throw in Iga, Schwantek in there and Coco Kao. Yeah. So yeah, we, right. we could probably get like a four or five way rivalry if, you know, every, everyone stays healthy and, you know, they kind of uh, unlock their potential. So yeah, Steve, thank you. Very, sorry, go ahead. You said it, Saqib. That's true. It's staying healthy. And obviously it was sad to see Ash Barty getting hurt and not being able to give a full, you know, her having to, after having had the season she's had to have injuries really lead to her demise here was unfortunate, but you're right. Get, get, get four or five players, keep them healthy and let's see them go at it in some enticing rivalries. And the potential is definitely there. Absolutely. On, on that note, I think we covered quite a lot uh, uh, for this uh, French Open. There's a lot of, uh, you know, mouthwatering tennis awaits us. Thank you, Steve Flink. It was always, it's always it's a pleasure. Hopefully we can do this again soon sometime. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Saqib. We'll talk soon.